Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. How does Smith greet the newest visitor to Blandings, who just introduced himself as Ralston McTodd? P.G. Woodhouse, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Many, many thanks to all of our listeners and supporting members who help to keep us going. I hope everyone is keeping safe and well in this crazy time. Please take advantages of the free selections available at ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com in the category Home from School Free. Use these titles to escape and keep your wits sharp during the coronavirus outbreak. Thanks again to our financial contributors. It is the monthly subscriptions that are largely keeping us afloat right now, as we are giving a lot of stuff away. Thank you for helping us to stay strong and continue to share the best books with those who need it. Every donation helps. Again, if you need some comfort or literary nourishment, I have made a selection of titles available for free during the pandemic please visit ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and go to the Home From School free category to download a selection of titles geared for grades K-12. through I'll be adding more titles soon. You can find a link to the free material in the description for today's episode. I'm so excited that The Hunchback of Notre Dame has been named as a finalist for the Independent Audiobook Awards. Annie also shared the announcement during her latest Join Us in France podcast episode. Thanks for the amazing introduction, Annie. We'd like to thank Spotify for being a partnering sponsor. And if you have the Classic Tales app, you can listen to more of the meditations of Marcus Aurelius in the special features area. Now for our personal moment. So, in our family, I've been trying to rework the failure narrative. Uh, you know, one of my kids is an artist, another's an actor, another's a designer. And we frequently tell them, that's not working, try it again. And try and let them know and, and try and teach that failure is part of the process. It's, it's not a final destination. Try it. Absolutely, that's a great idea. Run with it. See if it works. It might not work, but it might lead you to the right place. So that being said, I spent all weekend figuring out how to configure an installation method for a swamp cooler. Our old one died. It was as old as the hills. It was really old and scary. And uh, we thought we'd get a bigger one, which meant I had to figure out how to install it on the side of the house. And after two days of cutting sheet metal and drilling holes in masonry and lifting things up and putting chains on the roof and all sorts of nightmare things, I... I just, I just, I just failed, is what, is what happened. And uh, in the middle of this, I took the opportunity to, to show the kids. Do you see? 
I am failing. This is failure. This is part of the process. I'm not done, and I'll get there. But this is two days of a big failure that your dad's doing right now, and that's what happened. But my wife Silla came in, and she's like, "No, not that way. Do it like this." And things are working in a really good direction now. So I think we're gonna be okay. Hopefully, it'll be done soon before things get too hot. Hopefully, we'll have a、uh, a happy ending next week <laughs> to report. And now, leave it to Smith, Part Six of Eight, by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter Nine: Smith engages a valet. From out of the scented shade of the big cedar on the lawn in front of the castle, Smith looked at the flower beds. Jaunty and gleaming in the afternoon sun, then he looked back at Eve, incredulity in every feature. "I must have misunderstood you, surely," he said in a voice vibrant with reproach. "You do not seriously intend to work in weather like this." "I must. I've got a conscience. They aren't paying me a handsome salary, a fairly handsome salary, to sit about in deck chairs." "But you only came yesterday." Well, I ought to have worked yesterday. It seems to me," said Smith, "the nearest thing to slavery that I have ever struck. I had hoped, seeing that everybody had gone off and left us alone, that we were going to spend a happy and instructive afternoon together under the shade of this noble tree, talking of this and that. Is it not to be? No, it is not. It's lucky you're not the one who's supposed to be cataloguing this library. It would never get finished." And why, as your employer would say, should it? He has expressed the opinion several times in my hearing that the library has jogged along quite comfortably for a great number of years without being catalogued. Why shouldn't it go on like that indefinitely? It's no good trying to tempt me. There's nothing I should like better than to loaf here for hours and hours. But what would Mister Baxter say when he got back and found out? It is becoming increasingly clear to me each day that I stay in this place. Said Smith moodily, "That Comrade Baxter is little short of a blister on the community. Tell me, how do you get on with him? I don't like him much, nor do I. It is on these communities of taste that lifelong attachments are built. Sit down and let us exchange confidences on the subject of Baxter." Eve laughed. "I won't. You're simply trying to lure me into staying out here and neglecting my duty. I really must be off now." You have no idea what a lot of work there is to be done. You are entirely spoiling my afternoon. No, I'm not. You've got a book. What is it? Smith picked up the brightly jacketed volume and glanced at it. The man with the missing toe, Comrade Threepwood, lent it to me. He has a vast store of this type of narrative. I expect he will be wanting you to catalogue his library next. Well, it looks interesting. Ah, but what does it teach? How long do you propose to shut yourself up in that evil-smelling library? An hour or so. Then I shall rely on your society at the end of that period. We might go for another saunter on the lake. All right, I'll come and find you when I've finished. Smith watched her disappear into the house, then seated himself once more in the long chair under the cedar. A sense of loneliness oppressed him. He gave one look at the man with the missing toe. And having rejected the entertainment it offered, 
gave himself up to meditation. Blanding's castle dozed in the midsummer heat like a palace of sleep. There had been an exodus of its inmates shortly after lunch, when Lord Emsworth, Lady Constance, Mr. Keeble, Miss Peavy, and the efficient Baxter had left for the neighbouring town of Bridgeford in the big car, with the Honourable Freddy puffing in its wake in a natty two-seater. Smith, who had been invited to accompany them, had declined on the plea that he wished to write a poem. He felt but a tepid interest in the afternoon's programme, which was to consist of the unveiling by his lordship of the recently completed memorial to the late Hartley Reddish Esquire J.P., for so many years Member of Parliament for the Bridgeford and Shifley Division of Shropshire. Not even the prospect of hearing Lord Emsworth, clad, not without vain protest and weak grumbling, in a silk hat, morning coat, and sponge-bag trousers, deliver a speech, had been sufficient to lure him from the castle grounds. But at the moment when he had uttered his refusal, thereby incurring the ill-concealed envy both of Lord Emsworth and his son Freddy, the latter also an unwilling celebrant, he had supposed that his solitude would be shared by Eve. This deplorable conscientiousness of hers, this morbid craving for work, had left him at a loose end. The time and the place were both above criticism, but as so often happens in this life of ours, he had been let down by the girl. But though he chafed for a while, it was not long before the dreamy peace of the afternoon began to exercise a soothing effect upon him. With the exception of the bees that worked with their usual misguided energy among the flowers, and an occasional butterfly which flitted past in the sunshine, all nature seemed to be taking a siesta. Somewhere out of sight, a lawnmower had begun to emphasize the stillness with its musical whirr. A telegraph boy on a red bicycle passed up the drive to the front door, and seemed to have some difficulty in establishing communication with the domestic staff, from which Smith deduced that Beach, the butler, like a good opportunist, was taking advantage of the absence of authority to enjoy a nap in some distant lair of his own. Eventually a parlour-maid appeared, accepted the telegram, and apparently a rebuke from the boy, and the bicycle passed out of sight, leaving silence and peace once more. The noblest minds are not proof against atmospheric conditions of this kind. Smith's eyes closed, opened, closed again. And presently his regular breathing, varied by an occasional snore, was added to the rest of the small sounds of the summer afternoon. The shadow of the cedar was appreciably longer when he awoke with that sudden start which generally terminates sleep in a garden chair. A glance at his watch told him that it was close on five o'clock, a fact which was confirmed a moment later by the arrival of the parlour-maid who had answered the summons of the telegraph-boy. She appeared to be the sole survivor of the little world that had its centre in the servants' hall, a sort of female Casabianca. "'I have put your tea in the hall, sir. You could have performed no nobler or more charitable task,' Smith assured her and having corrected a certain stiffness of limb by means of massage, went in. It occurred to him that Eve, assiduous worker though she was, might have knocked off in order to keep him company. The hope proved vain. A single cup stood bleakly on the tray. Either Eve was superior to the feminine passion for tea, 
or she was having hers up in the library. Filled with something of the sadness which he had felt at the sight of the toiling bees, Smith embarked on his solitary meal, wondering sorrowfully at the perverseness which made girls work when there was no one to watch them. It was very agreeable here, in the coolness of the hall. The great door of the castle was open, and through it he had a view of lawns, bathed in a thirst-provoking sunlight. Through the green baize door to his left, which led to the servants' quarters, an occasional sharp giggle gave evidence of the presence of humanity. But apart from that, he might have been alone in the world. Once again, he fell into a dreamy meditation, and there is little reason to doubt that he would shortly have disgraced himself by falling asleep for the second time in a single afternoon, when he was restored to alertness by the sudden appearance of a foreign body in the open doorway. Against the background of golden light, a black figure had abruptly manifested itself. The sharp pang of apprehension, which ran through Smith's consciousness like an electric shock, causing him to stiffen like some wild creature surprised in the woods, was due to the momentary belief that the newcomer was the local vicar, of whose conversational powers he had had experience on the second day of his visit. Another glance showed him that he had been too pessimistic. This was not the vicar. It was someone whom he had never seen before, a slim and graceful young man with a dark, intelligent face, who stood blinking in the subdued light of the hall, with eyes not yet accustomed to the absence of strong sunshine. Greatly relieved, Smith rose and approached him. "'Hello,' said the newcomer. "'I didn't see you. It's quite dark in here after outside.' "'The light is pleasantly dim,' agreed Smith. "'Is Lord Emsworth anywhere about?' "'I fear not. He has legged it, accompanied by the entire household, to superintend the unveiling of a memorial at Bridgeford, to, if my memory serves me rightly, the late Hartley Reddish Esquire, J.P.M.P. Is there anything I can do?' "'Well, I've come to stay, you know.' "'Indeed. Lady Constance invited me to pay a visit as soon as I reached England.' "'Ah, then you have come from foreign parts. Canada.' Smith started slightly. This, he perceived, was going to complicate matters. The last thing he desired was the addition to the blanding circle of one familiar with Canada. Nothing would militate against his peace of mind more than the society of a man who would want to exchange with him views on that growing country. "'Oh, Canada,' he said. "'I wired,' proceeded the other. "'But I suppose it came after everybody had left.' Ah, that must be my telegram on that table over there. I walked up from the station. He was rambling idly about the hall, after the fashion of one breaking new ground. He paused at an occasional table, the one where, when taking after-dinner coffee, Miss Peavy was wont to sit. He picked up a book and uttered a gratified laugh. One of my little things, he said. One of what? said Smith. This book. "'Songs of Squalor. I wrote it.' "'You wrote it?' "'Yes. My name's MacTard, Ralston MacTard. I expect you have heard them speak of me.' The mind of a man who has undertaken a mission as delicate as Smith's at Blanding's Castle is necessarily alert. Ever since he had stepped into the five o'clock train at Paddington, when his adventure might have been said formally to have started, Smith had walked warily, like one in a jungle, 
on whom sudden and unexpected things might pounce out at any moment. This calm announcement from the slim young man, therefore, though it undoubtedly startled him, did not deprive him of his faculties. On the contrary, it quickened them. His first action was to step nimbly to the table on which the telegram lay, awaiting the return of Lord Emsworth. His second was to slip the envelope into his pocket. It was imperative that telegram signed MacTodd should not lie about loose while he was enjoying the hospitality of the castle. This done, he confronted the young man. Come, come, he said with quiet severity. He was extremely grateful to a kindly providence which had arranged that this interview should take place at a time when nobody but himself was in the house. You say that you are Ralston MacTodd, the author of these poems? Yes, I do. Then what, said Smith incisively, is a pale parabola of joy? Uh, what? said the newcomer in an enfeebled voice. There was manifest in his demeanour now a marked nervousness. And here is another, said Smith. The, wait a minute, I'll get it soon, yes, the sibilant, scented silence that shimmered where we sat. Could you oblige me with a diagram of that one? I, I, what are you talking about? Smith stretched out a long arm and patted him almost affectionately on the shoulder. It's lucky you met me before you had to face the others, he said. I fear that you undertook this little venture without thoroughly equipping yourself. They would have detected your imposture in the first minute. What do you mean, imposture? I don't know what you're talking about. Smith waggled his forefinger at him reproachfully. My dear comrade, I may as well tell you at once that the genuine MacTodd is an old and dear friend of mine. I had a long and entertaining conversation with him only a few days ago. So that, I think we may confidently assert, is that. Or am I wrong? Oh, hell, said the young man, and flopping bonelessly into a chair, he mopped his forehead in undisguised and abject collapse. Silence reigned for a while. What? inquired the visitor, raising a damp face that shone pallidly in the dim light. Are you going to do about it? Nothing, comrade. By the way, what is your name? Coots. Nothing, comrade Coots. Nothing whatever. You are free to leg it hence whenever you feel disposed. In fact, the sooner you do so, the better I shall be pleased. Say, that's darn good of you. Not at all, not at all. You're an ace. Oh, hush, interrupted Smith modestly. But before you go, tell me one or two things. I take it that your object in coming here was to have a pop at Lady Constance's necklace? Yes, I thought as much. And what made you suppose that the real MacTodd would not be here when you arrived? Oh, that was all right. I travelled over with that guy MacTodd on the boat, and saw a good deal of him when we got to London. He was full of how he'd been invited here, and I got it out of him that no one here knew him by sight. And then one afternoon I met him in the Strand, all worked up, madder than a hornet. Said he'd been insulted, and wouldn't come down to this place if they came and begged him on their bended knees. I couldn't make out what it was all about, but apparently he had met Lord Emsworth, and hadn't been treated right. He told me he was going straight off to Paris. And did he? Sure. I saw him off myself at Charing Cross. That's why it seemed such a cinch coming here instead of him. 
It's just my darned luck that the first man I run into is a friend of his. How was I to know that he had any friends this side? He told me he'd never been in England before. In this life, Comrade Coots, said Smith, we must always distinguish between the unlikely and the impossible. It was unlikely, as you say, that you would meet any friend of McTodd's in this out-of-the-way spot, and you rashly ordered your movements on the assumption that it was impossible. With what result? The cry goes round the underworld, Poor old Coots has made a bloomer. You needn't rub it in. I'm only doing so for your good. It is my earnest hope that you will lay this lesson to heart and profit by it. Who knows that it may not be the turning point in your career? Years hence, when you are a white-haired and opulent man of leisure, having retired from the crook business with a comfortable fortune, you may look back on your experience of today and realize it was the means of starting you on the road to success. You will lay stress on it when you are interviewed for the weekly burglar on How I Began. But, talking of starting on roads, I think that perhaps it would be as well if you now had a dash at the one leading to the railway station. The household may be returning at any moment now. That's right, agreed the visitor. I think so, said Smith. I think so. You will be happier when you are away from here. Once outside the castle precincts, a great weight will roll off of your mind. A little fresh air will put the roses in your cheeks. You know your way out. He shepherded the young man to the door, and with a cordial push, started him on his way. Then with long strides, he ran upstairs to the library to visit Eve. At about the same moment, on the platform of Market Blanding stations, Miss Eileen Peavy was alighting from the train which had left Bridgeford some half an hour earlier. A headache, the fruit of standing about in the hot sun, had caused her to forego the pleasure of hearing Lord Emsworth deliver his speech, and she had slipped back on a convenient train with the intention of lying down and resting. Finding on reaching Market Blandings that her head was much better, and the heat of the afternoon being now over, she started to walk to the castle, greatly refreshed by a cool breeze which had sprung up from the west. She left the town at almost the exact time when the disconsolate Mr. Coots was passing out of the big gates at the end of the castle drive. The grey melancholy which accompanied Mr. Coots, like a diligent spectre, as he began his walk back to the town of Market Blandings, and which not even the delightful evening could dispel, was due primarily, of course, to that sickening sense of defeat which afflicts a man whose high hopes had been wrecked at the very instant when success had seemed in sight. Once or twice in the life of every man there falls to his lot something which can only be described as a soft snap, and it had seemed to Mr. Coots that this venture of his to Blanding's castle came into that category. He had, like most members of his profession, had his ups and downs in the past, but at last he told himself the goddess Fortune had handed him something on a plate with watercress round it. Once established in the castle, there would have been a hundred opportunities of achieving the capture of Lady Constance's necklace, and it had looked as though all he had to do was to walk in, announce himself, and be treated as the honoured guest. As he slouched moodily between the dusty hedges that fringed the road to market blandings, Edward Coots tasted the bitterness 
that only those know whose plans had been upset by the hundredth chance. But this was not all. In addition to the sadness of frustrated hope, he was also experiencing the anguish of troubled memories. Not only was the present torturing him, but the past had come to life and jumped out and bitten him. Osoro's crown of sorrow is remembering happier things, and this was what Edward Coots was doing now. It is at moments like this that a man needs a woman's tender care, and Mr. Coots had lost the only woman in whom he could have confided his grief, the only woman who would have understood and sympathized. We have been introduced to Mr. Coots at a point in his career when he was practicing upon dry land, but that was not his chosen environment. Until a few months back, his business had lain upon deep waters. The salt scent of the sea was in his blood, and to put it more exactly, he had been by profession a card sharper on the Atlantic liners, and it was during this period that he had loved and lost. For three years and more, he had worked in perfect harmony with the lady who, though she adopted a variety of names for purposes of travel, was known to her immediate circle as Smooth Lizzie. He had been the practitioner, she the decoy, and theirs had been one of those ideal business partnerships which one so seldom meets with in a world of cynicism and mistrust. Comradeship had ripened into something deeper and more sacred, and it was all settled between them that when they next touched New York, Mr. Coots, if still at liberty, should proceed to the city hall for a marriage license. When they had quarrelled, quarrelled irrevocably over one of those trifling points over which lovers do quarrel, some absurd dispute as to the proper division of the quite meagre sum obtained from a cattle millionaire on their last voyage had marred their golden dreams. One word had led to another. The lady, after a woman's habit, at the last of the series, and even Mr. Coots was forced to admit that it was a pippin. She had spoken it on the pier at New York, and then passed out of his life, and with her had gone all his luck. It was as if her going had brought a curse upon him. On the very next trip, he had had an unfortunate misunderstanding with an irritable gentleman from the Middle West, who, piqued at what he considered, not unreasonably, the undue proportion of kings and aces in the hands which Mr. Coots had been dealing himself, expressed his displeasure by biting off the first joint of the other's right index finger, thus putting an abrupt end to a brilliant career. For it was on this finger that Mr. Coots principally relied for the almost magical effects which he was wont to produce with a pack of cards, after a little quiet shuffling. With an aching sense of what might have been, he thought now of his lost Lizzie. Regretfully, he admitted to himself that she had always been the brains of the firm. A certain manual dexterity he had no doubt possessed, but it was ever Lizzie who had been responsible for the finer work. If they had still been partners, he really believed she could have discovered some way of getting round the obstacles which had reared themselves now between himself and the necklace of Lady Constance Keeble. It was in a humble and contrite spirit that Edward Coots proceeded on his way to market landings. Miss Peavy, meanwhile, 
who, it will be remembered, was moving slowly along the road from the market blanding's end, was finding her walk both restful and enjoyable. There were moments, it has to be recorded, when the society of her hostess and her hostess's relations was something of a strain to Miss Peavy, and she was glad to be alone. A headache had disappeared, and she reveled in the quiet evening hush. About now, if she had not had the sense to detach herself from the castle platoon, she would, she reflected, be listening to Lord Emsworth's speech on the subject of the late Hartley Reddish J.P.M.P., a topic which even the noblest of orators might have failed to render really gripping. And what she knew of her host gave her little confidence in his powers of oratory. Yes, she was well out of it. The gentle breeze played soothingly upon her face. Her delicately modelled nostrils drank in gratefully the scent from the hedgerows. Somewhere out of sight a thrush was singing, and so moved was Miss Peavy by the peace and sweetness of it all that she too began to sing. Had those who enjoyed the privilege of her acquaintance at Blanding's Castle been informed that Miss Peavy was about to sing, they would doubtless have considered themselves on firm ground if called upon to make a conjecture as to the type of song which she would select. Something quaint, dreamy, a little wistful. That would have been the universal guess. Some old-world ballad, possibly. What Miss Peavy actually sang, in a soft, meditative voice, like that of a linnet waking to greet a new dawn, was the curious composition known as the Beale Street Blues. As she reached the last line, she broke off abruptly. She was, she perceived, no longer alone. Down the road toward her, walking pensively like one with a secret sorrow, a man was approaching, and for an instant, as she turned the corner, something in his appearance seemed to catch her by the throat, and her breath came sharply. "'Gee!' said Miss Peavy. She was herself again the next moment. A chance resemblance had misled her. She could not see the man's face, for his head was bent. But how was it possible? And then, when he was quite close, he raised his head, and the county of Shropshire, as far as it was visible to her amazed eyes, executed a sudden and eccentric dance. Trees bobbed up and down, hedgerows shimmied like a Broadway chorus, and from out of the midst of the whirling countryside a voice spoke. "'Liz! Eddie!' ejaculated Miss Peavy faintly, and sat down in a heap on a grassy bank. "'Well, for goodness sake,' said Miss Peavy. Shropshire had become static once more. She stared at him, wide-eyed. "'Can you tie it?' said Miss Peavy. She ran her gaze over him once again from head to foot. "'Well, if this ain't the cat's whiskers,' said Miss Peavy. And with this final pronouncement, she rose from her bank, somewhat restored, and addressed herself to the task of picking up old threads. "'Wherever,' she inquired, "'did you spring from, Ed?' There was nothing but affection in her voice. Her gaze was that of a mother contemplating her long-lost child. The past was past, and a new era had begun. In the past, she had been compelled to describe this man as a hunk of cheese, and to express the opinion that his crookedness was such as to enable him to hide at will behind a spiral staircase. 
But now, in the joy of this unexpected reunion, all these harsh views were forgotten. This was Eddie Coots, her old sidekick, come back to her after many days, and only now was it borne in upon her what a gap in her life his going had made. She flung herself into his arms with a glad cry. Mr. Coots, who had not been expecting this demonstration of esteem, staggered a trifle at the impact, but recovered himself sufficiently to return the embrace with something of his ancient warmth. He was delighted at this cordiality, but also surprised. The memory of the lady's parting words on the occasion of their last meeting was still green, and he had not realized how quickly women forget and forgive, and how a sensitive girl, stirred by some fancied injury, may address a man as a pie-faced plug-ugly, and yet retain in her inmost heart all the old love and affection. He kissed Miss Peavy fondly. Liz, he said with fervor, you're prettier than ever. Now you behave, responded Miss Peavy coyly. The arrival of a buying flock of sheep, escorted by a priggish dog and followed by a couple of the local peasantry, caused an intermission in these tender exchanges, and by the time the procession had moved off down the road, they were in a more suitable frame of mind to converse quietly and in a practical spirit, to compare notes and to fill up the blanks. Wherever, inquired Miss Peavy again, did you spring from, Ed? You could have knocked me down with a feather when I saw you coming along the road. I couldn't have believed it was you this far from the ocean. What are you doing inland like this? Taking a vacation? Or aren't you working the boats any more? No, Liz, said Mr. Coots, sadly. I've had to give that up. And he exhibited the hiatus where an important section of his finger had been, and told his painful tale. His companion's sympathy was balm to his wounded soul. The risks of the profession, of course, said Mr. Coots moodily, removing the exhibit in order to place his arm about her slender waist. Still, it's done me in. I tried once or twice, but I couldn't seem to make the cards behave no more, so I quit. Ah, Liz, said Mr. Coots with feeling, you can take it from me that I've had no luck since you left me. Regular hoodoo there's been on me. If I'd walked under a ladder on a Friday to smash a mirror over the dome of a black cat, I couldn't have had it tougher. You poor boy. Mr. Coots nodded somberly. Tough, he agreed. But there it is. Only this afternoon my jinx gummed the game for me and threw a spanner into the prettiest little scenario you ever thought of, but let's not talk about my troubles. What are you doing now, Liz? Me? Oh, I'm living near here. Mr. Coots started. Not married? he exclaimed in alarm. No! cried Miss Peavy with vehemence and shot a tender glance up at his face. And I guess you know why, Ed. You don't mean you hadn't forgotten me? As if I could ever forget you, Eddie. There's only one tin type on my mantelpiece. But it struck me, it sort of occurred to me as a passing thought, that when we saw each other last, you were a mite peeved with your Eddie. It was the first allusion either of them had made to the past unpleasantness, and it caused a faint blush to dye Miss Peavy's soft cheek. Oh, shucks, she said. 
I'd forgotten all about that next day. I was good and mad at the time, I'll allow, but if only you'd called me up next morning, Ed. There was a silence as they mused on what might have been. What are you doing living here? asked Mr. Coots after a pregnant pause. Have you retired? No, sir. I'm sitting in at a game with real worthwhile stakes, but darn it, said Miss Peavy regretfully. I'm wondering if it isn't too big for me to put through alone. Oh, Eddie, if only there was some way you and me could work it together like in the old days. What is it? Diamonds, Eddie. A necklace. I've only had one look at it so far, but that was enough. Some of the best ice I've saw in years, Ed, worth every cent of a hundred thousand berries. The coincidence drew for Mr. Coots a sharp exclamation. A necklace? Listen, Ed, while I slip you the lowdown, and say, if you knew the relief it was to me talking good United States again, like taking off a pair of tight shoes, I'm doing the high-toned stuff for the moment, soulful, you remember, like I used to pull once or twice in the old days. Just after you and me had that little spat of ours, I thought I'd take another trip in the old Atlantic. Force of habit or something, I guess. Anyway, I sailed and we weren't two days out from New York when I made the biggest kind of a hit with the dame this necklace belongs to. Seemed to take a shine to me right away. I don't blame her, murmured Mr. Coots devotedly. Now don't you interrupt, said Miss Peavy, administering a gratified slap. Where was I? Oh, yes. This here now Lady Constance Keeble I'm telling you about. What? What's the matter now? Lady Constance Keeble? That's the name. She's Lord Emsworth's sister, who lives at a big place up the road. Blanding's Castle, it's called. She didn't seem like she was able to let me out of her sight, and I've been with her off and on ever since we landed. I'm visiting at the castle now. A deep sigh, like the groan of some great spirit in travail, forced itself from between Mr. Coote's lips. Well, wouldn't that jar you? he demanded of circumambient space. Of all the lucky ones, getting into the place like that, with the band playing and a red carpet laid down for you to walk on. Gee, if you fell down a well, Liz, you'd come up with the bucket. You're a human horseshoe, that's what you are. Say, listen, let me tell you something. Do you know what I've been doing this afternoon? Only trying to edge into the damn place myself and getting the air two minutes after I was past the front door. What? You, Ed? Sure. You're not the only one that's heard of that collection of ice. Oh, Ed. Bitter disappointment rang in Miss Peavy's voice. If only you could have worked it. Me and you, partners again? It hurts to think of it. What was the stuff you pulled to get you in? Mr. Coots so far forgot himself in his agony of spirit as to expectorate disgustedly at a passing frog. And even in this trivial enterprise, failure dogged him. He missed the frog, which withdrew into the grass with a cold look of disapproval. Me? said Mr. Coots. I thought I'd got it smooth. I'd chummed up with a fellow who had been invited down to the place, and had thought it over and decided not to go. So I said to myself, what's the matter with going there instead of him? A gink called McTodd, this was, a poet, 
and none of the folks had ever set eyes on him except the old man, who's too short-sighted to see anyone, so... Miss Peavy interrupted. You don't mean to tell me, Ed Coots, that you thought you could get into the castle by pretending to be Ralston McTodd? Sure I did. Why not? It didn't seem like there was anything to it. A cinch, that's what it looked like. And the first guy I met in the joint is a mutt who knows this McTodd well. We had a couple of words, and I beat it. I know what I'm not wanted. But Ed, Ed, what do you mean? Ralston McTodd is at the castle now, this very moment. How's that? Sure. Been there a couple of days and more. Long, thin bird with an eyeglass. Mr. Coote's mind was in a whirl. He could make nothing of this matter. Nothing like it. McTodd's not so darn tall or so thin, if it comes to that. And he didn't wear no eyeglass all the time I was with him. This, he broke off sharply. My gosh, I wonder, he cried. Liz, how many men are there in the joint right now? Only four, besides Lord Emsworth. There's a big party coming down for the county ball, but that's all there is at present. There's Lord Emsworth's son, Freddy. What does he look like? Sort of a dude with blonde hair slicked back. Then there's Mr. Keeble. He's short with a red face. And? And Baxter. He's Lord Emsworth's secretary. Wear spectacles. And that's the lot? That's all there is. Not counting this here McTodd and the help. Mr. Coots brought his hand down with a resounding report on his leg. The mildly pleasant look, which had been a feature of his appearance during his interview with Smith, had vanished now, its place taken by one of an extremely sinister malevolence. And I let him shoo me out as if I was a stray pup, he muttered through clenched teeth. Of all the bunk games! What are you talking about, Ed? And I thanked him, thanked him! moaned Edward Coots, writhing at the memory. I thanked him for letting me go. Eddie Coots, whatever are you... Listen, Liz. Mr. Coots mastered his emotion with a strong effort. I blew into that joint and met this fellow with the eyeglass, and he told me he knew McTodd well and that I wasn't him. And from what you tell me, this must be the very guy that's passing himself off as McTodd. Don't you see? This baby must have started working on the same lines I did. Got to know McTodd, found he wasn't coming to the castle, and came down instead of him, same as me. Only he got there first, damn him. Wouldn't that give you a pain in the neck? Amazement held Miss Peavy dumb for an instant. Then she spoke. The big stiff, said Miss Peavy. Mr. Coots, regardless of a lady's presence, went even further in his censure. I had a feeling from the first that there was something not on the level about that guy said Miss Peavy. Gee, he must be after the necklace, too. Sure he's after the necklace, said Mr. Coots impatiently. What did you think he'd come down for? A change of air? But, Ed, say, are you going to let him get away with it? Am I going to let him get away with it? said Mr. Coots, annoyed by the foolish question. Wake me up in the night and ask me. But what are you going to do? Do? said Mr. Coots. Do? I'll tell you what I'm going to... He paused, and the stern resolve that shone in his face seemed to flicker. 
Say, what the hell am I going to do? He went on somewhat weakly. You won't get anything by putting the folks wise that he's a fake. That would be the finish of him, but it wouldn't get you anywhere. No, said Mr. Coots. Wait a minute while I think, said Miss Peavy. There was a pause. Miss Peavy sat with knit brows. How would it be, ventured Mr. Coots. Cheese it, said Miss Peavy. Mr. Coots cheesed it. The minutes ticked on. I've got it, said Miss Peavy. This guy's ace high with Lady Constance. You've got to get him alone right away and tell him he's got to get you invited to the place as a friend of his. I knew you'd think of something, Liz, said Mr. Coots almost humbly. You always were a wonder like that. How am I to get him alone? I can fix that. I'll ask him to come for a stroll with me. He's not what you'd call crazy about me, but he can't very well duck if I keep after him. We'll go down to the drive. You'll be in the bushes. I'll show you the place. Then I'll send him to fetch me a wrap or something. And while I walk on, he'll come back past where you're hiding, and you jump out at him. Liz, said Mr. Coots, lost in admiration. When it comes to doping out a scheme, you're the snake's eyebrows. But what are we going to do if he just turns you down? Mr. Coots uttered a bleak laugh, and from the recesses of his costume produced a neat little revolver. He won't turn me down, he said. Fancy, said Miss Peavy, if I had not had this headache and come back early, we should never have had this little chat. She gazed up at Smith in her gentle, wistful way as they started together down the broad gravel drive. A timid, soulful little thing she looked. No, said Smith. It was not a gushing reply, but he was not feeling at his sunniest. The idea that Miss Peavy might return from Bridgeford in advance of the main body had not occurred to him. As he would have said himself, he had confused the unlikely with the impossible, and the result had been that she had caught him beyond hope of retreat as he sat in his garden chair and thought of Eve Halliday, who, on their return from the lake, had been seized with a fresh spasm of conscience and had gone back to the library to put in another hour's work before dinner. To decline Miss Peavy's invitation to accompany her down the drive, in order to see if there were any signs of those who had been doing honour to the late Hartley Reddish MP, had been out of the question. But Smith— though he went, went without pleasure. Every moment he spent in her society tended to confirm him more and more in the opinion that Miss Peavy was the curse of the species. And I have been so longing, continued his companion, to have a nice long talk. All these days I have felt that I haven't been able to get as near you as I should wish. Well, of course, with the others always about, I meant in a spiritual sense, of course. I see. I wanted so much to discuss your wonderful poetry with you. You haven't so much as mentioned your work since you came here, have you? Ah, but, you see, I am trying to keep my mind off it. Really? Why? My medical adviser warned me that I had been concentrating a trifle too much. He offered me the choice, in fact— between a complete rest and the loony bin. 
The what, Mr. McTodd? The lunatic asylum, he meant. These medical men expressed themselves oddly. But surely, then, you ought not to dream of trying to compose if it is as bad as that. And you told Lord Emsworth that you wished to stay at home this afternoon to write a poem. Her glance showed nothing but tender solicitude. But inwardly, Miss Peavy was telling herself that that would hold him for a while. True, said Smith. True, but you know what art is, an inexorable mistress. The inspiration came, and I felt that I must take the risk. But it has left me weak, weak. You big stiff, said Miss Peavy, but not aloud. They walked on a few steps. In fact, said Smith with another inspiration, I'm not sure I ought not to be going back and resting now. Miss Peavy eyed a clump of bushes some dozen yards farther down the drive. They were quivering slightly, as though they sheltered some alien body, and Miss Peavy, whose temper was apt to be impatient, registered a resolve to tell Edward Coots that if he couldn't hide behind a bush without dancing about like a cat on hot bricks, he had better give up his profession and take to selling jellied eels, in which, it may be mentioned, she wronged her old friend. He had been as still as a statue until a moment before, when a large and excitable beetle had fallen down the space between his collar and his neck, an experience which might well have tried the subtlest woodsman. "'Oh, please don't go in yet,' said Miss Peavy. "'It is such a lovely evening. Hark to the music of the breeze in the treetops, so soothing, like a faraway harp. I wonder if it is whispering secrets to the birds.' Smith forbore to follow her into this region of speculation, and they walked past the bushes in silence. Some little distance farther on, however, Miss P.V. seemed to relent. "'You are looking tired, Mr. McTodd,' she said anxiously. "'I am afraid you really have been overtaxing your strength. Perhaps, after all, you had better go back and lie down. You think so? I am sure of it. I will just stroll on to the gates,' "'and see if the car is in sight. "'I feel that I am deserting you. "'Oh, please,' said Miss Peavy deprecatingly. "'With something of the feelings of a long-sentence convict "'unexpectedly released immediately on his arrival in jail, "'Smith retraced his steps. "'Glancing over his shoulder, "'he saw that Miss Peavy had disappeared round a bend in the drive, "'and he paused to light a cigarette. "'He had just thrown away the match and was walking on, well content with life, when a voice behind him said, Hey! And the well-remembered form of Mr. Edward Coots stepped out of the bushes. See this! said Mr. Coots, exhibiting his revolver. I do indeed, Comrade Coots, replied Smith. And if it is not an untimely question, what is the idea? That, said Mr. Coots, is just in case you try any funny business and replacing the weapon in a handy pocket, he proceeded to slap vigorously at the region between his shoulder-blades. He also wriggled with not a little animation. Smith watched these manoeuvres gravely. "'You did not stop me at the pistol's point, merely to watch you go through your Swedish exercises,' he said. Mr. Coots paused for an instant. "'Got a beetle or something down my back,' he explained curtly. "'Ah!' "'Then, as you will naturally wish to be alone in such a sad moment, "'I will be bidding you a cordial good evening and strolling on.' 
No, you don't. Don't I? said Smith resignedly. Perhaps you are right. Perhaps you are right. Mr. Coots replaced the revolver once more. I take it then, Comrade Coots, that you would have speech with me. Carry on, old friend, and get it off your diaphragm. What seems to be on your mind? A lucky blow appeared to have stunned Mr. Coots, Beetle, and he was able to give his full attention to the matter in hand. He stared at Smith with considerable distaste. "'I'm on to you, Bill,' he said. "'My name is not Bill,' said Smith. "'Now,' snapped Mr. Coots, his annoyance by this time very manifest. "'And it's not McTard.' Smith looked at his companion thoughtfully. This was an unforeseen complication, and for the moment he would readily have admitted that he saw no way of overcoming it. That the other was in no genial frame of mind towards him, the expression of his face would have showed, even if his actions had not been sufficient indication of the fact. Mr. Coots, having disposed of his beetle, and being now at leisure to concentrate his whole attention on Smith, was eyeing that immaculate young man with a dislike which he did not attempt to conceal. "'Shall we be strolling on?' suggested Smith. "'Walking may assist thought. At the moment I am free to confess that you have opened up a subject which causes me some perplexity. I think, Comrade Coots, having given the position of affairs a careful examination, that we may say that the next move is with you. What do you propose to do about it?' "'I'd like,' said Mr. Coots, with asperity, "'to beat your block off. No doubt, but—' I'd like to knock you for a goal. Smith discouraged these utopian dreams with a deprecating wave of the hand. I can readily understand it, he said courteously. But to keep within the sphere of practical politics, what is the actual move which you contemplate? You could expose me, no doubt, to my host, but I cannot see how that would profit you. I know that. "'But you can remember I've got that up my sleeve "'in case you try any funny business.' "'You persist in harping on that possibility, Comrade Coots. "'The idea seems to be an obsession with you. "'I can assure you that I contemplate no such thing. "'What, to return to the point, do you intend to do?' "'They had reached the broad expanse opposite the front door, "'where the drive, from being a river, "'spread out into a lake of gravel.' Smith stopped. "'You've got to get me into this joint,' said Mr. Coots. "'I feared that that was what you were about to suggest. "'In my peculiar position I have naturally no choice "'but to endeavour to carry out your wishes. "'Any attempt not to do so would, I imagine, "'infallibly strike so keen a critic as yourself as funny business. "'But how can I get you into what you breezily describe as this joint?' "'You can say I'm a friend of yours, and ask them to invite me.' "'Smith shook his head gently. "'Not one of your brightest suggestions, Comrade Coots, "'tactfully refraining from stressing the point "'that an instant lowering of my prestige would inevitably ensue, "'should it be supposed that you were a friend of mine. "'I will merely mention that, being myself merely a guest in this stately home of England,' I can hardly go about inviting my chums here for indefinite visits. Now, we must find another way. You're sure you want to stay? Quite so, quite so. I merely asked. Now, let us think. 
Through the belt of rhododendrons, which jutted out from one side of the castle, a portly form at this point made itself visible, moving high and disposedly in the direction of the back premises. It was Beach the butler, returning from the pleasant ramble in which he had indulged himself on the departure of his employer and the rest of the party. Revived by some gracious hours in the open air, Beach was returning to duty, and with the sight of him there came to Smith a neat solution of the problem confronting him. Oh, Beach, he called, sir, responded a fruity voice. There was a brief pause while the butler navigated into the open. He removed the straw hat which he had donned for his excursion, and enfolded Smith in a pop-eyed but not unkindly gaze. A thoughtful critic of country-house humanity, he had long since decided that he approved of Smith. Since Lady Constance had first begun to offer the hospitality of the castle to the literary and artistic world, he had been profoundly shocked by some of the rare and curious specimens who had nodded their disordered locks and flaunted their ill-cut evening clothes at the dinner-table over which he presided, and Smith had come as a pleasant surprise. "'Sorry to trouble you, Beach. Not at all, sir. "'This,' said Smith, indicating Mr. Coots, who was viewing the scene with a wary and suspicious eye, and I obviously alert for any signs of funny business, is my man, my valet, you know. He has just arrived from town. I had to leave him behind to attend to the bedside of a sick aunt. Your aunt was better when you came away, Coots? he inquired graciously. Mr. Coots correctly interpreted this question as a feeler, with regard to his views on this new development, and decided to accept the situation. True, he had hoped to enter the castle, in a slightly higher capacity than that of a gentleman's personal gentleman, but he was an old campaigner. Once in, as he put it to himself with admirable common sense, he would be in. "'Yes, sir,' he replied. "'Capital,' said Smith. "'Capital.' "'Then will you look after Coote's speech?' "'Very good, sir,' said the butler, in a voice of cordial approval. The only point he had found to cavil at in Smith had been removed, for it had hitherto pained him a little that a gentleman with so nice a taste in clothes as that dignified guest should have embarked on a visit to such a place as Blanding's Castle without a personal attendant. Now all was explained, and as far as Beach was concerned, forgiven. He proceeded to escort Mr. Coots to the rear. They disappeared behind the rhododendrons. They had hardly gone when a sudden thought came to Smith as he sat once more in the coolness of the hall. He pressed the bell. Strange, he reflected, how one overlooked these obvious things. That was how generals lost battles. Sir, said Beach, appearing through the green baize door. Sorry to trouble you again, Beach. Not at all, sir. I hope you will make Coots comfortable. I think you will like him. His, when you get to know him, is a very winning personality. He seems a nice young fellow, sir. Oh, and by the way, Beach, you might ask him if he brought my revolver from town with him. Yes, sir, said Beach, who would have scorned to betray emotion if it had been a Lewis gun. I think I saw it sticking out of his pocket. You might bring it to me, will you? Very good, sir. Beach retired to return a moment later. On the silver salver which he carried, the lethal weapon was duly reposing.
"'Your revolver, sir,' said Beach. "'Thank you,' said Smith. "'For some moments after the butler had withdrawn "'in his stately pigeon-toed way through the green baize door, "'Smith lay back in his chair "'with a feeling that something attempted, something done, "'had earned a night's repose. "'He was not so sanguine as to suppose "'that he had actually checkmated an adversary "'of Mr. Coote's strenuousness "'by the simple act of removing a revolver from his possession, "'but there was no denying the fact "'that the feel of the thing in his pocket "'engendered a certain cosy satisfaction. "'The little he had seen of Mr. Coote's "'had been enough to convince him "'that the other was a man "'who was far better off without an automatic pistol. "'There was an impulsiveness about his character "'which did not go well with the possession of firearms. "'Smith's meditations had taken him thus far "'when they were interrupted by an imperative voice. "'Hey!' Only one person of Smith's acquaintance was in the habit of opening his remarks in this manner. It was consequently no surprise to him to find Mr. Edward Coots standing at his elbow. "'Hey!' "'All right, Comrade Coots,' said Smith, with a touch of austerity. "'I heard you the first time, and may I remind you that this habit of yours, popping out from unexpected places and saying, "'Hey!' is one which should be overcome. Valets are supposed to wait till rung for.' "'At least I think so. "'I must confess that until this moment I have never had a valet.' "'And you wouldn't have one now if I could help it,' responded Mr. Coots. "'Smith raised his eyebrows. "'Why?' he inquired, surprised. "'This peevishness. "'Don't you like being a valet?' "'No, I don't.' "'You astonish me. "'I should have thought you would have gone singing about the house. "'Have you considered that the tenancy of such a position—' "'throws you into the constant society of Comrade Beach, "'than whom it would be difficult to imagine a more delightful companion.' "'Oh, stiff,' said Mr. Coots sourly. "'There's one thing that makes me tired. "'It's a guy that talks about his darned stomach all the time.' "'I beg your pardon? "'It's Beach Gook,' explained Mr. Coots. "'Has got something wrong with the lining of his stomach, "'and if I hadn't made my getaway, he'd be talking about it yet.' If you fail to find entertainment and uplift in first-hand information about Comrade Beecher's stomach, you must indeed be hard to please. I am to take it, then, that you came snorting out here, interrupting my daydreams, merely in order to seek my sympathy? Mr. Coots gazed upon him with a smouldering eye. I came to tell you I suppose you think you're darn smart. And very nice of you, too, said Smith, touched. A pretty compliment— "'for which I am not ungrateful. "'You got that gun away from me mighty smoothly, didn't you?' "'Since you mention it, yes. "'And now I suppose you think you're going to slip in ahead of me "'and get away with that necklace. "'Well, say, listen, let me tell you, "'it'll take someone better than a half-baked string bean like you "'to put one over on me.' "'I seem,' said Smith, pained, "'to detect a certain animus creeping into your tone.' "'Surely we can be trade rivals without this spirit of hostility. "'My attitude towards you is one of kindly tolerance. "'Even if you get it, where do you think you're going to hide it? "'And believe me, it'll take some hiding. "'Say, let me tell you something. I'm your valet, ain't I? "'Well, then, I can come into your room and be tidying up whenever I darn please, can't I? "'Sure I can.' 
I'll tell the world I can do just that little thing, and you take it from me, Bill. If you persist in the delusion that my name is William, you take it from me, Bill, that if ever that necklace disappears, and it isn't me that's done the disappearing, you'll find me tidying up in a way that'll make you dizzy. I'll go through that room of yours with a fine-tooth comb. So chew on that, will ya? And Edward Coots, moving somberly across the hall, made a sinister exit. The mood of cool reflection was still to come, when he would realize that in his desire to administer what he would have described as a hot one, he had acted a little rashly in putting his enemy on his guard. All he was thinking now was that his brief sketch of the position of affairs would have the effect of diminishing Smith's complacency a trifle. He had, he flattered himself, slipped over something that could be classified as a jolt. Nor was he unjustified in this view. The aspect of the matter on which he had touched was one that had not previously presented itself to Smith, and musing on it as he resettled himself in his chair, he could see that it afforded food for thought. As regarded the disposal of the necklace, should it ever come into his possession, he had formed no definite plan. It assumed that he would conceal it somewhere until the first excitement of the chase slackened, and it was only now that he realized the difficulty of finding a suitable hiding-place outside his bedroom. Yes, it was certainly a matter on which, as Mr. Coots had suggested, he would do well to chew. For ten minutes, accordingly, he did so, and, it being practically impossible to keep a good man down, at the end of that period he was rewarded with an idea. He rose from his chair and pressed the bell. "'Ah, Beach,' he said affably, as the green baize door swung open, "'I must apologize once more for troubling you. I keep ringing, don't I?' "'No trouble at all, sir,' responded the butler paternally. "'But if you were ringing to summon your personal attendant, I fear he is not immediately available. He left me somewhat abruptly a few moments ago.' I was not aware that you would be requiring his services until the dressing-gong sounded, or I would have detained him. Never mind. It was you I wished to see, Beach, said Smith. I am concerned about you. I learned from my man that the lining of your stomach is not all it should be. That is true, sir, replied Beach, an excited gleam coming into his dull eyes. He shivered slightly, as might a war-horse on the sound of the bugle. I do have trouble with the lining of my stomach. Every stomach has a silver lining, sir. I said, tell me all about it. Well, really, sir, said Beach wistfully. To please me, urged Smith. Well, sir, it is extremely kind of you to take an interest. It generally starts with a dull shooting pain on the right side of the abdomen from twenty minutes to half an hour after the conclusion of a meal. The symptoms— there was nothing but courteous sympathy in Smith's gaze, as he listened to what sounded like an eyewitness's account of the San Francisco earthquake. But inwardly, he was wishing that his companion could see his way to making it a bit briefer and snappier. However, all things come to an end. Even the weariest river winds somewhere to the sea. With a moving period, the butler finally concluded his narrative. Parks, Pepsinine said Smith promptly. Sir, that is what you want. Parks Pepsinine. It would set you right in no time. I will make a note of the name, sir. 
"'The specific has not come to my notice until now, "'and if I may say so,' added Beach, "'with a glassy but adoring look at his benefactor, "'I should like to express my gratitude for your kindness.' "'Not at all, Beach, not at all. "'Oh, Beach,' he said, "'as the other started to manoeuvre towards the door, "'I've just remembered there was something else "'I wanted to talk to you about.' "'Yes, sir.' "'I thought it might be as well to speak to you about it "'before approaching Lady Constance. "'The fact is, Beach, I am feeling cramped.' "'Indeed, sir. "'I forgot to mention that one of the symptoms "'from which I suffer is a sharp cramp. "'Too bad. "'But let us, if you don't mind, shelve for the moment "'the subject of your interior organism and its ailments. "'When I say I am feeling cramped, I mean spiritually. "'Have you ever written poetry, Beach?' "'No, sir.' "'Ah!' "'that it may be a little difficult for you to understand my feelings. "'The trouble is this. "'Out in Canada, Beach, "'I grew accustomed to doing my work "'in the most solitary surroundings. "'You remember that passage in my Songs of Squalor, "'which begins across the pale parabola of joy?' "'I fear, sir. "'You missed it? "'Tough luck. "'Try to get hold of it sometime. "'It's a bird. "'Well, that passage was written in a lonely hut "'on the banks of the Saskatchewan.' "'miles away from human habitation. "'I am like that, Beach. "'I need the stimulus of the great open spaces. "'When I am surrounded by my fellows, "'inspiration slackens and dies. "'You know how it is when there are people about. "'Just as you are starting in to write a nifty, "'someone comes and sits down on the desk "'and begins talking about himself. "'Every time you get going nicely, "'in barges some alien influence and the muse goes bluey. You see what I mean? Yes, sir, said Beach, gaping slightly. Well, that is why, for a man like me, existence in Blanding's castle has its drawbacks. I've got to get to a place where I can be alone, Beach, alone with my dreams and visions, some little eyrie peached on the cliffs of time. In other words, do you know of an empty cottage somewhere on the estate, where I could betake myself when in the mood— "'and swing a nib without any possibility of being interrupted? "'A little cottage, sir, a little cottage, "'with honeysuckle over the door "'and old Mr. Moon climbing up above the trees. "'A cottage, Beach, where I can meditate, "'where I can turn the key in the door "'and bid the world good-bye, "'now that the castle is going to be full of all of these people "'who are coming from the county ball, "'it is imperative that I wangle such a haven.' "'Otherwise a considerable slab of priceless poetry "'will be lost to humanity forever.' "'You desire,' said Beach, "'feeling his way cautiously, "'a small cottage where you can write poetry, sir? "'You follow me like a leopard. "'Do you know of such a one? "'There is an unoccupied gamekeeper's cottage "'in the West Woods, sir, "'but it is an extremely humble place. "'Be it never so humble, it will do for me.' "'Do you think Lady Constance would be offended "'if I were to ask for the loan of it for a few days? "'I fancy that her ladyship would receive the request "'with equanimity, sir. "'She is used to... "'She is not unaccustomed... "'Well, I can only say, sir, "'that there was a literary gentleman "'visiting the castle last summer "'who expressed a desire to take sun-baths "'in the garden each morning before breakfast. "'In the nude, sir. "'And beyond instructing me to warn the maids... Her ladyship placed no obstacle in the way of the fulfilment of his wishes. So, so a modest request like mine isn't likely to cause a heart attack? Admirable. 
"'You don't know what it means to me to feel that I shall soon have a little refuge of my own, "'to which I can retreat and be in solitude. "'I can imagine that it must be extremely gratifying, sir. "'Then I will put the motion before the board directly Lady Constance returns. "'Very good, sir. "'I should like to splash it on the record once more, Beach, "'that I am much obliged to you for your sympathy and advice in this matter. "'I knew you would not fail me. Uh, "'Not at all, sir.' I am only too glad to have been able to be of assistance. Oh, and Beach, sir, just one more thing. Will you be seeing Coots, my valet, again shortly? Quite shortly, sir, I should imagine. Then would you mind just prodding him smartly in the lower ribs? Sir, cried Beach, startled out of his butlerian calm. He swallowed a little convulsively. For eighteen months and more— Ever since Lady Constance Keeble had first begun to cast her fly and hook over the murky waters of the artistic world, and jerk its denizens onto the pile carpets of Blanding's castle, Beach had had his fill of eccentricity. But until this moment, he had hoped that Smith was going to prove an agreeable change from the stream of literary lunatics which had been coming and going all that weary time. And lo, Smith's name led all the rest— even the man who had come for a week in April and had wanted to eat jam with his fish paled in comparison. "'Prod him in the ribs, sir?' he quavered. "'Prod him in the ribs,' said Smith firmly, "'and at the same time whisper in his ear the word, "'Aha!' Beach licked his dry lips. "'Aha, sir. "'Aha, and say it came from me.' "'Very good, sir. "'The matter shall be attended to.' said Beach, and with a muffled sound that was half a sigh, half a death-rattle, he tottered through the green baize door. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of Leave It to Smith, Part 6 of 10, by P.G. Woodhouse. If you've enjoyed this book, please visit our website at classictalesaudiobooks.com and take advantage of the free audiobooks we have available during the time of the coronavirus COVID-19 outbreak. And please tell your friends and family anyone who could possibly use them. Anything to make things easier, am I right? Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners, also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200.